Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. We have reached Jonathan V. Last in his palatial abode, where he's speaking to us via Skype about his uh, latest piece for the Standard, The Difference Between Tactics and Strategy When Running for President. Mr. Last, thank you so much for getting us cleared on your calendar. I am happy to join from the monogamous compound out in the wilds of Virginia. I did uh, want to make it clear that before the conversation started, we did pick all of the brown M&Ms out of your bowl. So it's, that's, we've met all the contractual obligations. No, so what is, who is the strategic and who is the tactical candidate in the race for the White House? So the tactical candidate is actually Trump. I mean, this is one of the things that has surprised lots of people over the course of the last year uh, is that he's actually very good on the stump. Like when he's doing his unscripted sort of stream of consciousness thing, it's very entertaining. Uh, He was actually very nimble during the primary debates when he was on a stage with 10 other people. He was pretty good, actually. Uh, I mean, there were some great... I'll never forget the funniest moment I've ever seen at a presidential debate was in the first Fox debate when Megyn Kelly was hitting him for how nasty he's been to women. And he had this fantastic line where he says, uh, you know, look, I was just Rosie O'Donnell. And like his timing was perfect. Like it was a joke. Yeah, a lot of people thought it was a tasteless joke, but it was a really well played joke. He's just very good at that sort of thing. Uh, And so he's a pretty good tactical candidate. Um, Hillary Clinton is not. She can't do anything that normal, good political the pieces of horse flesh do. She's not a very good debater. She's very, she's solid. She doesn't make a lot of mistakes, but she's not especially good at it. Uh, she is horrible at retail politics. And when you see her in a small room with a hundred supporters, uh, she is sort of robotic and maniacal. She's like the worst versions of Mitt Romney. Uh, and the thing that amazes me most is she cannot give a speech. This is a woman who's been in political life for 30 years, essentially. And the simple act of giving a set piece speech, which is the political equivalent of shooting free throws in basketball, uh, it just eludes her. She is horrible at it. Really, really. I don't know why you say that Hillary Clinton can't give a speech. It, the she, problem it is, is apparently nobody ever turns her microphone on, so she has to talk without the aid of a sound system. Well, not only that, but she puts the emphasis on the wrong words. Like, you know, you, if you were to sort of like diagram out the sentence where you put a, a long horizontal line over the words that she emphasizes, it's everything's wrong. You know, it's we are building a bridge to the 21st century. You know, it's everything she Jonathan does wrong. This is, like, this is like having an NBA player who's a 25 percent free throw shooter. And you just think to yourself, at some point along the way, why didn't you get to the 60 percent mark at this? You may be tired of Hillary Clinton speeches, but I want you to know I ain't no ways tired. I come too far to hold back now. Uh, yeah. So the question that everyone is waiting to hear you answer here in the weekly center podcast is so what wins the white house then? Is it brilliant, nimble tactics in the moment, able to seize the political moment by jumping on the daily news cycle or is it a, a broader overall strategy where you kind of three yards in a cloud of dust grind out your uh, political objectives? So in a jump ball election, and I, and I would I would uh, disassociate this from elections where you have like an incumbent president where the election is really just a referendum on the, the state of the country. You know, uh, so in, in this where you have basically it's an open seat. You have a president who is reasonably popular, but not overwhelmingly popular. It really is a jump ball. This should be winnable by either side. I would say that the advantage is going to go to the person with the better strategic vision for the election. And that is clearly the Clinton camp. Uh, 
I was I would say it it took me a while to become a believer in in their strategic vision. Uh, for a long time, I thought, gee, I'm not so sure. Uh, I was intrigued by the way they took their lumps in the primaries. I mean, if you were sort of watching four months out, three months out from the Iowa caucuses, it looked really possible that she was going to lose both Iowa and New Hampshire. Which would have been humiliating for the you know the, the most overwhelming establishment favorite ever, uh, and she came very close to losing both. She uh, eked out a very very narrow win in Iowa, um, but she didn't panic. I mean, she sort of she understood her strategic situation. She understood that Vern, Bernie Sanders was the equivalent of Admiral Yamamoto, right? You see, I can run wild in the Pacific for three months, and then what do you expect me to do? And that's that's what Sanders was. He had no base of support in the party outside of. Uh, upscale white liberals and young millennial voters. So she she took her lumps. She never panicked. She had a strategic vision for what she would do, and she executed it. Uh, and then it was the amazing, amazing Democratic convention. And I would say that the con speech left an enormous impression upon me. Uh, and, and I think it should upon like anybody who is a serious observer in politics, because it when you looked at the schedule that afternoon, so that afternoon for the fourth day of the convention, the schedule comes out and you look through and right before the main instruction for the nominee of the party is tucked in this speech. Well, it's like a seven minute speech by two people that you've never heard of, you know, these sort of men on the street uh, type of democratic speech. And I thought, well, what the heck is that doing there? That's wrong. Like that doesn't feel right. And it turns out that they put that in there because they knew they were baiting Donald Trump into blowing himself up. They knew that they had to hide her speech because her speech was going to be terrible. They knew this going in, and it, they were right. Her convention speech was horrible. But I would say within 18 hours of her convention, her, her convention speech, nobody was talking about it. Everybody was focused on Khan, and that ate up like a week and a half of the news cycles. Uh, we got to see the worst Trump on display, uh, and it really, really hobbled his campaign. And so I, I thought to myself at that point, these people know what they're doing. And then once you know that, and you sort of look back on Hillary Clinton's career, uh, by all accounts, she was the person in, during impeachment who said to the Clinton White House, who said, no, we are not going to resign. We're not going to be disgraced by this. We're not going to have any shame. We're going to dig in and fight, and we're going to counterattack. And because we have a presidency, eventually we will grind our enemies to dust. And she was right about that. So I would say in all of this, I, I've become very, uh, very impressed with her strategic acumen. Um, you know, it's all in service of evil, which is a shame. It would be nice if we could have that sort of strategic vision for somebody who's a good person. And you on our say side. that like it's a bad thing, Jonathan Land. <laughs> no, she's like it's like having the White Walkers in Game of Thrones, who turns out to be like you know really they know what they're doing. Um, but on the other hand, I, I do think that again, I, I even looked at the the Pence Kane debate. And I thought to myself, it was over the course of the night, Mike Pence clearly won the debate. Uh, Mike Pence was a, a very attractive uh, guy who put together a nice vision of what he, Mike Pence, would do. Uh, but through the entire time as I was watching, I thought, uh, Pence is going to win this debate, which is meaningless because it's the VP debate and nobody's voting for Mike Pence. And the Clinton campaign is then going to own like the next four or five days of news cycles because Everything is going to be – the stories are going to be – look at all these things that Keynes said that Trump said and then Pence simply denied it. Right. And you're going to have all the fact-checking video and, again, a just strategic – very, very savvy strategic vision of what the race should be about. And I expect there will be more of the debate this Sunday. I think one thing that people are overlooking as they look at uh, polls and money and you know rallies and momentum and the desire for change and all the other factors that go in this and they're all part of the menu – but the top menu item, in my opinion, at this point, is time. 
We're down to yeah. about 30 days. We're about to lose three of those days to hurricane coverage. Uh, so Donald Trump is re- realistically assuming that the debate can penetrate the hurricane coverage, which will be, you know, actually happening <laughs> for a lot of the United States while they're on stage on the debate. Uh, assuming he can penetrate that, he's still only got 20 some days setting aside early voting. He's only got 20 some days before November 8th and chance to change the dynamic of a race, a race that looks like right now it has kind of settled into, yeah, Trump is going to win Ohio. Yeah, Trump is going to have a shocker in Iowa. But everything else is going the wrong way, and it's going to end up being a a pretty traditional Democratic electoral college win. Yeah, he has no margin for error. I mean, when you look at the problem for the map is he has to win everywhere. He has to hold North Carolina. He has to win Ohio. He has to win Pennsylvania. He has to win Florida. And at the same time, you see polls out today. I think he's tied in Arizona. There's a poll out today. He's still very close in Georgia. (laughs) And so there are lots of places where he could actually lose ground. Uh, You're absolutely right about the problem of time. So think about it this way. Think about September. September is the month where everything went right for Trump. Uh, and nothing went right for Clinton, right? And so you had 30 days of you know, everything going just the way the Trump campaign wanted. And they were barely able to make up about five points of ground nationally. That's how long it takes. It takes about four weeks to get where you know, we're in perfect conditions to make up about five points of ground. And that, of course, is when people haven't hardened their decisions yet, right? So you have fewer you have fewer people who are truly persuadable voters at this point right. because that field keeps winnowing, winnowing, winnowing. And so the percentage of those people you have to win to make up all of that ground increases. I think the number I saw was, uh, you know, a, a month ago, he needed to win 60% of undecided voters in order to, to overcome the deficit. Now it's up to like 77% of undecided voters. So the math in all of this just gets pitiless. And I'm, you know, I'm sort of continually amazed by the Republicans and Trump supporters who look at this and say, no, no, everything's going to be fine. I have one email correspondent, uh, a wonderful lady, very savvy, knows a lot of politics. And uh, she assured me that she thought that Trump was going to carry carry California. And I just thought, geez, I – Well, look, there's a theory of of the race for talking about strategy. And the theory of the race is that the Trump vote is just out there and they're not talking to pollsters and they're not telling anybody, but they're just going to show up and vote for him, that they've already decided in their gut that's what they're going to do. And they they waver day to day, you know, <laughs> bad Trump day, maybe what they tell their coworker changes. But they, in the back of their mind, have said, throw these jerks. I don't, I don't even care. I don't care if it's Donald Trump. I don't care if it's you know, Sasquatch. I don't, I'm just voting for the guy who's going to blow this sucker up. And that's one yeah, theory yeah. of the race. Well, let me let me offer another and then ask you to pick which one you think is the closest. My theory of the race is the opposite. My theory of the race is that Trump is, has been kind of like a tease of people like, yeah, I am going to vote. That's screw it. I'm sick of these Clintons and I'm sick of Washington, blah, blah, blah. But as the actual election day gets closer and more and more is revealed about Trump and it becomes harder and harder to feel not bad. Forget feeling good about voting for him. It's harder to feel not dirty, like you know, they need to put the polling place in a shower, that uh, you'll have the cascade effect at the end. And when it becomes clear around November 1st that Trump's not going to win, people are going to say, you know, I might have been prepared to pass a despicable vote to beat Hillary, but I'm not going to throw a despicable vote and lose. I'm going to I'm just not going to vote for Trump or I'm going to whatever they, they decide They leave it blank or they write it in or the what stay home. But that's what that's my working theory is that the cascade effect will be the final outcome of this election. And Trump will end up losing a particularly bad mark by a particularly large margin. 
totally possible. So in the first scenario, the, the hidden Trump voters, the secret Trump voters, you know, I would be more amenable to that if we had seen it in the primaries, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. Trump polled pretty close to his average in just about every single primary contest. Mm-hmm. So if there were no hidden Trump voters during the, you know, 50 or so votes that we had running up to uh, to the general election, why would there be secret Trump voters now. So that that just doesn't make any sense to me. I think, and this is the Republican nightmare scenario right now, is that the, the I would say if you were going to look at what Paul Ryan and Reince Priebus ser- you know, secretly believe in their heart of hearts, they would tell you uh, that they had to do what they've done in embracing Trump because they were going to try to manage him to a four or five point loss, which would enable them to narrowly hold the Senate, but reasonably comfortably hold the House. And to this point, actually, they've done that. I mean, he, he's down about four or five points nationally. And that's what, if the vote were held today, Republicans would narrowly hold the Senate and probably comfortably hold the House. But the problem is, as exactly as you said, so all these people who have talked themselves into holding their nose for Trump, if they really had to in order to stop her because it looks like a close election, if it's not a close election, and I just have never believed it would be, I've always thought the most likely outcome is she wins by four or five points. That seems to be the natural equilibrium point for the race. So if it's two days before the election and it's just obvious that she's going to win and be the next president, then why would you show up and debase yourself for that because then you at the very least you can tell yourself at least i didn't vote for the guy and at that point the route could really be on that's Mm -hmm. the danger point for for down ballot republicans uh and is why actually frankly if i were in the rnc i is why i actually would have tried to hedge my bets by encouraging like the evan mcmullen movement Mm -hmm. because you could have had a safe place for people to park their votes uh and and to protect down ballot Mm -hmm. candidates in case you wound up in a route and i really do think you're it's entirely possible especially because think about this Trump will not act like Bob Dole when he is facing certain defeat, right? I mean, Bob Dole, seven days before the election, was a good soldier who behaved honorably and didn't do anything crazy. Unless Ivanka takes her dad's phone every night before he goes to bed, if he is down seven points nationally going in, I mean, it's going to be all black helicopters and race wars from him and Twitter at 3 a.m. And it could get really, really bad. And then you wind up with a whole spate of stories like 48 hours, 72 hours before the vote, going back to the Republican, vulnerable Republican down ballot right. candidates saying, how do you react to this? You wind up with Kelly Ayotte. Did you see the Kelly Ayotte thing this week? She was yes. in a debate with Maggie Hassan. She was asked, you know, is Trump a role model? And she sort of got this frozen deer in the headlights mm-hmm. look and said, yes, Absolutely. And within eight hours, there was an ad out from the Democrats, which was devastating. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, Ayotte walked back and said, no, I misspoke. He's not a role model. And today has her own ad out saying that, you know, I don't really endorse any of these people and I can work with whoever's going to be president. And so it could... I say, however bad you think things are now, just understand that if you're a down ballot Republican, there's the chance of them getting catastrophically worse. Donald Trump is a category five disaster heading towards those down ballot races. And so you got to keep your eye on the storm track. And on that positive note, we will let you get back to your uh, morning brunch of uh, champagne and foie gras because we hate to interrupt you at home. Jonathan V. Last, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. You got it. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. Or better still, subscribe to all our podcasts on iTunes. Give us a nice five-star rating. Always helpful. You'll never miss another podcast by going to iTunes.com and subscribing to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham.